0: doesn't mean this he means this when it seems so painfully obvious that jesus meant what i say he doesn't mean and that's just about everything i read to make sure that i was going down the right path i was confirmed that you know that the men that i respected that that wrote uh, to explain these passages all agreed that first of all that jesus does not forbid uh, universally the practice of swearing but at the same time they all agreed that many people misunderstand that so i want to be very careful so what we're going to try to do is jump around starting from the beginning we will be at least for the first few jumping to uh, hebrews and then uh, trying to make our way through the scripture so i want to show you a couple of instances that we see uh, the swearing used in the bible so genesis 22 the first place we're going to go and i mentioned it this morning that genesis 22 is one of the first places that we even see uh, something, uh, this, this whole topic being uh, introduced. It says, uh, verse number 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And this happened when Abraham was, uh, had taken Isaac upon to the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. But notice what God says there at the, at the very beginning of that speech. He says to him, by myself have I sworn. So God swore to Abraham that he would bless him because Abraham had proved himself obedient and faithful, uh, even in the losing of his, of his only son here. So, when Abraham proved obedient in not keeping back Isaac from God, God swore by himself, and that's important, to bless and multiply Abraham and his descendants. Now, the writer of Hebrews picks this passage up and re-explains it. So, if you want to go to Hebrews 6 and verse 13 we see what the writer of Hebrews, uh, how that was interpreted, and most of the time people would say that it was Paul, but uh, it doesn't really make a difference in what we're going to look at tonight. The writer here says, So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will... Oh, that is... Is that right? Oh, that's Hebrews 13.6. That was not going to help us. Hebrews 6.13, though, will... For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which it was possible, impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And He's talking about other things than what we'll focus on, but I just want you to see how it's being explained here, how the swearing of the oath by God was meant, what it was meant there. Why would God need to swear? Uh, I, I when I'm studying throughout the week, I'll just begin to write everything that comes to mind. One of the things that came to mind was if God never lies, why does God need to swear? And the reason that we swear is because men lie. And so the reason that if, if Pastor Sears swears to me, it's because he's a man, and there, that means that there's a chance that he could be lying to me, or at the very least, he could be wrong. And so when he swears it, he is saying, this is true. And it's not by his word, but now it's by whatever he's swearing by. But if God is God and God never lies and God is never wrong, why does he need to swear? But he did in Genesis twenty-two. He does in more places than we even have than we're going to look at tonight. But God's swearing to people by himself, but he's swearing to people all throughout the scriptures. And I have to ask why he's doing that. Well, Hebrews explains to us a little bit that it is to confirm the oath. Notice, notice there in verse number. Um, Verse number uh, 16. Men verily swear by the greater. So they swear by something greater than themselves. Well, since there's nothing greater than God, God said, I swear by myself. Because there's nothing greater than I am. And he says, and an oath for confirmation is to them to an end of all strife. So this was a confirmation of the promise that God had already made. Um, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So that's what God was intending to do there. And notice that the verse 16 tells us that oaths are for confirming the truth and settling disputes. Really, it's a way to end all disputing. You say, well, he swore by it, so it must be true. Uh, still, So I just want you to see a, one example, as we continue to move through, uh, that God uh, swore to Abraham. We see number two, God swore to Israel in Numbers 14. Verse 26, if you want to turn there, just for sake of time, I'm going to turn there and read it as soon as I get to it. Numbers 14, 26. Numbers 14, 26. If I were really on the ball, I would have earmarked all these things. So I could find them right away. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmuring. Uh, of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me, say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in my eyes, so will I do you. It's that phrase there that he says in verse number twenty-eight: "As truly as I live, as I live." And this is a this is a swearing by things. It's just another phrase, or another way that it's said. But God is is fed up here with Israel. This is when they refuse to enter the promised land because the giants and and the, the insurmountable odds that they would have faced, and they said, "We're not doing it." And uh, God said, "Fine, <laughs> I'm done. I'm done dealing with you. I've had it." And he says, "You're going to die, as you said. You'll die. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to wander around." And he throws out. He says in verse 29, "This is not like the most loving response that God has, but I, I think he gets his point across. Your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. Not just you're going to die in the wilderness. Your carcasses are going to rot." In the wilderness, why? Because you disobeyed. So you're going to get what you want, and those 20 and under, I'm sorry, 20 and older are going to die. And the only two older than 20 that are going to make it in and see that promised land are be Joshua and Caleb. And everyone else is going to go in. But what did God do? He didn't just say they were going to go in. He said, "As surely as I live, you won't be going in there." So God swore that they would not make it in there. Uh, we see then uh, Psalm 110. Uh, verse 4, that uh, he swears that Messiah will be an eternal priest. Now you have uh, Genesis also in your notes. We won't go back there, uh, so you can just, you don't have to start turning there, but Psalm, will cover the two that we have here. Psalm 110, and verse 4, says, The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent. So God swore, and he's not going back on this, about what? Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So this is a a promise uh, about the Messiah who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, this is Genesis fourteen. Remember when Abraham he uh, went and he, and he he fought the kings and he won and he brought back all the spoils of Sodom and Lot and uh, he brought he as he was coming back. the Genesis fourteen tells us that he met two kings. He met first he met Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And then he met the king of Sodom. Well, when he met Melchizedek, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. It just says that he he was the priest of God and he was a king of Salem. So he's both a priest and a king. When we get to Hebrews, which we'll see in just a moment, uh, it elaborates on Melchizedek and his priesthood, but essentially we need to understand that Melchizedek has an eternal priesthood, meaning that in Hebrews it says that when a priest dies, everything has to kind of start all over again. But when the priest remains forever, then everything, nothing stops. So that's what Melchizedek is representing, and David records here that the the king, the future king, the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be a priest, not like earthly priests, not a Levitical priest, but a priest that is after the order of an eternal priesthood, Melchizedek. And uh, but we see here that God swore this. Uh, if you want to skip over to Hebrews seventeen, you see that uh, Hebrews seven and verse seventeen. Hebrews 7.17-22 talk about Melchizedek. It says, For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Mephisto. But so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So he goes on there and he talks about it, but notice there that mo- most priests were not made priests by oaths. Our Levitical priests made priests by birth. But Jesus was made the priest, uh, by the oath that God made, uh, that God made with, with man there. Right, and then uh, the number four there is that we see that God swore to establish David's seed. If you're in, if you're in Psalm 110, just back up a little bit, Psalm 89. And this will be the last one that we look at as far as God the Father does. And I want you to see that of all these examples, God is the one who's doing all the swearing. If swearing were wrong, God wouldn't be doing it. But we do not understand why, it's, why Jesus says these things and what it means. So Psalm 89, and verse 3. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. God is swearing to David, what? Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Now, uh, we see that in Isaiah, uh, God swore uh, that uh, every knee would bow. We won't forsake the sake of time turn to these, but uh, you know the, the, the verses that we've read in Philippians many times, that uh, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and uh, things heaven and earth and under the earth, and uh, they'll, they'll, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, that also is in Isaiah 45, and that's what Philippians two is talking about. That uh, God swore that every knee will bow before Him one day, which means it's going to happen. It's a truth. It's going to happen, and and it was going to happen simply because He said it. But it's even more of a guarantee. It's even and at least it's for us to like. Okay, pay attention here because God swore He doubled down, if you will, on. The, the truth that every knee will stand before him uh, then we see I want I want to show you some other instances now for instance number five here is Jesus actually swore now it doesn't say Jesus swore in the Bible but if you look in Matthew 26 when Matt, when Jesus is being uh, brought in before the the high priest uh, and he's being, he's being wrongfully accused and whatnot but in Matthew 26 and verse 63 well back up to verse number 62. Uh, they are questioning him, you know, saying, well, he said this, making accusations in verse 62. The high priest arose and said unto him, Answerst thou nothing? What is it which these things witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. So here he's saying, basically, you're under oath. He's reminding him, you're under oath here. You're standing before us. Uh, this is a legal matter. This is a legal proceeding, and I adjure you by the living God. He's provoking Jesus to testify under oath are argue, and notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered. Jesus didn't say, hey, no, 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 we don't swear. He said, thou hast said it. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So he said something under oath. Jesus. So Jesus was not averse to... What we see here is basically a testi- testi- uh, testifying in court. Let me show you one more place, uh, and this is really all over. But we're in Matthew, so let's go to Romans chapter one and verse nine. We'll, we'll just see uh, one or uh, one or maybe two of these uh, that Paul reads. As you're reading through a lot of these, sometimes we kind of gloss over them because they just seem to be uh, stained glass words. If you were, if you would, but uh, Paul uses these different phrases throughout that really talk about this thing of the act of swearing. He says in verse number 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the son. He's calling God to be the witness in what he's saying. He doesn't have to, just have to say it. He says, God is my witness. And we see that in Second Corinthians. We see that in Galatians as well. So here's here's the here's the question again. And here's kind of my, my, my take on this. When, if at all, is it okay to take an oath? Now, because of the brokenness of the world in which we live, and the disdain that men seem to have uh, for the truth, it is sometimes necessary to confirm the truth with an oath. At the very least, an oath adds an increased measure of solemnity and seriousness to the truth. And when an oath is made, or when a swearing is done, as all these different ways that we've seen in the Scriptures are done, um, both the speaker and the listener are called to the importance of what is about to happen what is about to be said Uh, and this is something that should not be taken lightly. as we've seen god did not swear lightly you know in the the old testament the reason that they would swear by the temple and by the gold and all these different things because they didn't want to take god's name in vain but they went about it all wrong and we ought to be the same way that we don't want to take god's name in vain but there are times because Essentially, and we didn't really get into this, but when you swear by all of these different things, you're essentially swearing by God, and you don't call God into these matters of that are not important. But there are times when we've seen in the scriptures, as Paul says several times, God is my witness. I didn't do that. One of the times he was saying, "I didn't. I, I said I was going to come to you, and I couldn't, or I didn't come to you because I didn't. I think it was to the Corinthians there in Second Corinthians. I didn't want to come to you again and have another negative visit. And as God is my witness, there's a reason why I did this." He could have just said it, but he had to had to, he, he, he brought that that oath in, if you will, uh, with with, uh, with his writing. Now, what Jesus said, though, still applies. This is what we talked about this morning. Our words should be clear. They should be truthful. They should be without deceit. But when the plain and simple truth is obscured by deceit, legalese, by blatant lies. Oaths help us to confirm what we can believe. Now, in a perfect world, we would be able to take whatever someone says as the truth. But we can't always do that, Now, can we? In a day when even the most trusted sources have to be verified, for instance, every single news media that's out there, whatever you read on the internet, even reading it in a book, You've got to verify. You can't just say, "Well, I heard it." The only place that we can do that is God's Word. Even when someone in this room, the most respected person in this room, says something, we we have to go. Do they know what they're talking about? Are, are they sure? Because we've all been wrong before. The only thing that never fails is God's Word, and so everything else has to be confirmed. But so that this this act of swearing, used appropriately. Uh, Christian, well, it, it, is, it is helpful. Uh, Christians should mark themselves with, by honesty and by plain speaking and by integrity. Now, I told you I had two questions that I hadn't somehow didn't get printed in there. So maybe just something to consider as we go uh, from this place. But we do have two or three minutes, so if you want to answer it right now, or if you have something else to add in or a question, I would uh, love to hear what your, what your comments are. But here are my two questions. And I kind of already asked this once, uh, but uh, here's just something to kind of consume, to dwell on a little bit. Number one is, since God cannot lie, not the fact that he doesn't lie, but he cannot lie, why does he swear to us? We dwell on that. Think about that. Why does God swear to different people so many different times if God cannot lie? The people that he swore to in the Bible believed that he was telling the truth. He's God. But yet God, without being provoked, says, not only am I going to tell you the truth, I'm going to swear it to you. I'm going to make an oath to you. Why does God do that to us? And then number two, I think this is interesting. Can we see any connections, and I think I see one, between the topics that Jesus has been talking about? I think there's a reason that Jesus chose these specific topics to go through the Scripture. What did we just talk about before getting into oaths? What's the topic that was right before this? Adultery and divorce, right? Is there any connection between oaths and divorce? Is there any connection there? And I, and I think there's there's a very big one there. But there, there, and I and I see all these little ones how they're they're, they're so interconnected. I and mean, the the master of public speaking, Jesus is just giving this in conversation, and yet, you know, he's got all of these things that when we come back to it, we go, we reach back, man, was that too? You know, he didn't say anything misplaced. He didn't say anything just it just extra. Well, you know, I was trying to get my mind in order, and I just said some extra things. You can kind of cut this stuff out. Every single bit of it was in there perfectly, and I and I, and I think that it's, it would benefit us to at least come back and dwell on these types of things. what else is going on? What have we been talking about? What did we talk about here? And how do these things go together? You don't have to force them together, but like a puzzle piece, it just kind of fits. And you're like, oh. Well, that makes a lot sense. and instead of having all of these isolated truths we begin to form them and say you know what what has he been talking about overall hmm hmm, hmm. that all, all of that makes sense in a much different way even for me as i've read through and studied and tried to keep in mind the entire member, the, the the focal point of his sermon is what he said at the very beginning i'm not here to change the law i'm here to fulfill the law and you don't have greater righteousness than the Pharisees. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from there, he builds on all these things. That's why he's going to go into, for the last little bit and for the next one or two, I think he's going to, he talks about inward things, but then he begins to move on the outward. Even with the oaths, that's an outward thing. But then he's going to talk about things like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. And all of those things don't have to do with my heart. Now, they, they're kind of dependent on my heart attitude, but those are things on the outside. Adultery in the, in the heart, you don't see that. But you do see if I turn the other cheek. You do see if I go the extra mile. You do see if I do, if I have this eye for an eye, tooth for tooth mentality, or if I'm a forgiver. So all of these things are, help us to make uh, help us to gather even more truth. Really, we're squeezing the scriptures and wringing out as much truth as we can, rather than saying, "Well, I got something out of that." Let's move on. But coming back and saying, "What else is there?" We're 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 uh, you know you have to do it with your kids because hopefully we've grown up a little bit, but you know when you're eating something that's really, really good and you and you start licking the plate when you're all done because there's a little bit left over. That's what we're doing. We're come back to the scriptures going licking that plate a little bit more, like there's something else there. And it's okay. <laughs> no one's gonna get upset because God doesn't say, Hey, where's your manners? I say, Hey, you, you want some more of it.